0: This morning's talk um, will be on uh, the ethical life. I'm going to start with a passage, quite a well-known passage, uh, from the Kanda Sanyutta, from the Connected Discourses, where the Buddha says, I do not dispute with the world. Rather, it is the world that disputes with me. A proponent of the Dharma does not dispute with anyone in the world. Of that which the wise in the world agree upon as not existing, I too say that that does not exist. And of that which the wise in the world agree upon as existing, I too say that it exists. Now, I take this to mean that uh, the Buddha was not interested in um, presenting a correct description of reality that he regards as the preserve of the wise in the world. And were he to be teaching today, I suspect that he would... Accept the, um, he would agree with what the wise in the world agree upon as existing and what the wise in the world agree upon as not existing. I find it quite uh, inconceivable that uh, he would set out to uh, prove to uh, people today that there is reincarnation and that there is different realms of existence and that there is a law of karma that governs things and creates the world as it is. That was simply what the wise in the world agreed upon at the Buddha's time. The Pandita is the word he uses. Um, And in other words, he accepts the consensus, the broad consensus of those considered wise in the world. Now, one could, of course, dispute who the wise are. But I would take this um, much in the spirit of the text we concluded with last night, where he says about what it is that causes pleasure and pain. He says this is something that you can understand for yourself, or if not, others, the wise in the world, can explain it to you. So today, I suspect, um, the view that we have of, um, from we get from astrophysics, from biology, from the natural sciences, um, that is um, uh, an adequate account of how the world is, um, that will serve perfectly well for the practice of the dharma. The world may dispute uh, with the Buddha. They may not agree with him uh, on what he suggests in terms of how we should live, but he has no dispute with how people in the world understand and present uh, the world uh, uh, that they live in. He has no issue with that. And I think this is tied likewise to the whole idea of his refusal to get drawn into questions we call broadly metaphysical. Does the world have a beginning? Does it have an end? Is it finite? Is it infinite? Are mind and body the same? Are mind and body different? Nowadays we call that the body-mind problem in neuroscience. The Buddha is basically saying, that doesn't really matter. That doesn't concern me at all. Frankly, I think this is one of the most difficult things for us to grasp as, what, uh, as, as to what the Dharma is about. And I think part of the problem is that traditional forms of Buddhism have become deeply invested in regarding the world a certain way. In other words, the way it was viewed in ancient India and insisting that without that sense of, uh, without that particular description of the cosmos, the cosmology, you cannot really do the Dharma. And many very uh, learned and wise um, Buddhist teachers insist on this. Um, I think this is um, actually keeping the Dharma, um, it's actually... Preventing the Dharma from entering into the world in which we live today it 's uh, narrowing it down to um, those who can accept certain metaphysical beliefs that uh, fly in the face of everything we know about um, evolution, the brain um, uh, the expanding universe the extraordinarily um, vivid and rich accounts of the interconnectedness of organic life on this planet. Um, And insisting upon this, uh, what I think is an atavistic view of the world. Maybe this metaphor is a bit strong, but I feel that in order to allow the butterfly of the Dharma uh, to fly free from the chrysalis of Buddhism (laughs) (laughs) we have to let go of, we have to let that chrysalis fall away that has been the context within which the Dharma has come down to us Um, but I think it's, uh, its time is over And this I feel might be the feature of this current phase that we spoke of yesterday, of uh, the Dharma from around the year 2000, uh, penetrating into the secular sphere of our world. Um, If it's to go further, that I feel is what has to fall away. This doesn't make me terribly popular amongst many Buddhists. Um, but again, I, I'm not alone in here. Think of Buddha Dasa, uh, Buddha, who was a senior Thai Theravada Ajahn of the last century. Um, this was—he he would not have disagreed with this. Uh, Thignat Han, likewise, although Thignat Han is sensible enough not to make these points in public. <laughs> But in any case that that is really beside the point the point is that how do we engage fully with this practice each of us both individually in terms of our communities uh, I do think these are issues that we need to to consider very seriously so for me Dharma practice is not about gaining um, just some kind of private enlightenment Um, but it's about reconfiguring or reconstruing one's life in its totality and in this respect it includes virtue, sila contemplation samadhi and philosophy panya together in other words, if we take that to be the core um, of the Dharma practice, then its primary, the primary frame in which we need to contextualize it uh, is ethical. The cosmological frame is secondary. It doesn't, re- it doesn't really matter. And I think also we need to recognize that let's say in a thousand years time, I find it very difficult to imagine that people will still be looking at the world, the natural world, in the way we see it now. Uh, There's a certain conceit of the natural sciences that they've got it figured. Uh, I suspect that will be shown as almost certainly not the case. Um, It's a a good enough working model within which to engage in this ethical practice. We don't need to become uh, locked into that worldview of the natural sciences any more than we need to be locked into ancient Indian metaphysics. But it is the context of our time, of our age, our, our seculum. So that's the frame within which most of us will probably feel Um, intuitively at home and frankly I find that the the vision of life as um, presented uh, in the natural sciences um, uh, if anything deeply confirming of the key insights that we find uh, in the Buddha's awakening the insight into conditionality conditioned arising uh, evolution to me is the most beautiful um, uh, uh, illustration of that principle the study of history is likewise a very vivid illustration of how that process works if anything um, the worldview of modernity is an enormous affirmation of the primary intuitions uh, the the Buddha seemed to have woken up to. But again, I think we must come back repeatedly to the primacy of ethics. And ethics, I do not equate with uh, sila or with virtue or morality. Ethics refers to the practice in its totality, Dharma practice, Sila, Samadhi, Panya virtue, contemplation, philosophy that uh, is framed by the container of ethics this is how the Greeks understood ethics the word um, ethics is rooted in the Greek word ethos which means character again we tend to forget that in other words It has to do with aspiring uh, seeking to become the person one aspires to be. In other words, what is our vision of of what constitutes the good? Um, This is far more than just uh, following certain precepts. It has to do in every moment of our life in terms of how we think, of how we speak, of how we act, how we work. You see, the Eightfold Path is really um, an ethical uh, model. It's a model of ethics. How can we practice in such a way that we realize our sense of what constitutes a good life? And a good life is not reducible to for some private enlightenment that might be part of it, might be a crucial part of it, but it's only a part of a bigger whole. The Eightfold Path, um, one can, I think, with some justification, consider to be the beginning and the end of the Buddha's teaching, and I mean that quite literally. At the very beginning of the first discourse, or what is believed to be the first discourse. He says, I have found a middle way. And what is that middle way? It is this Noble Eightfold Path. And as he lay dying in the Sal Grove at Kusinara, uh, 45 years later, he received a final student, a man called Subhada. <coughs> and Subhada pestered Ananda uh, to be able to see the Buddha before he died Ananda um, said no the Buddha overheard and said send him in (laughs) so Subhada arrives Savada is received into the order of bhikkhus and then he asks the Buddha a question he says when you are no longer here and people claim to speak in your name how can we know what they say is represents your teaching um, and what doesn't and he's, and the Buddha replies wherever you find the noble eightfold path he doesn't say wherever you find uh, the teaching on nirvana it's the, it's the eightfold path and um, in this regard I feel that this too emphasizes uh, that the practice is essentially uh, Uh, an ethical one that the path the Eightfold Path in this regard is the goal we'll come back to this Nirvana to me is not the goal of Buddhism the end of suffering is not the goal of Buddhism or not the goal of the Dharma it might be the goal of Buddhism Uh, but but the cultivation of the Eightfold Path that actually emerges from the non-reactive space of nirvana, that is the goal uh, of the path the path and the goal are the same each moment it becomes a a challenge to realize a facet of the eightfold path or arguably the path as a whole we'll come back to this (coughs) So when we, for example, ask ourselves, or someone else asks us, why do you meditate? Why do you go to the Barry Center of Buddhist Studies and come on these weird courses? (laughs) (laughs) And I think those questions are worth coming back to again and again and again. Because it's all too easy uh, for for us to become complacent in our practice. Uh, We get used to it. It becomes familiar. All of our friends do it. We belong to the Buddhist club. And as a consequence, and again this is a sort of almost invisible slippage, uh, our practice becomes routinized. It becomes uh, a routine, a habit. We might be reasonably good at it. Our knees don't hurt anymore and we can get kind of still in our minds and but we start to get this funny feeling that it's all gone a bit flat. The, um, uh, it, it's somehow lost the, the energy, the urgency, the seriousness that it may have had at one point in our lives. So the practice is one, I think, of continuous renewal uh, to never, in a sense, uh, let oneself become routinized, uh, comfortable, complacent in what we're doing. Uh, that, to me, suggests a kind of, um, a kind of introversion, a kind of uh, a self-satisfaction, uh, almost a kind of conceit. Uh, whereas, as soon as we get into such a frame of mind... Uh, we close ourselves down uh, to responding to the suffering of the world. Uh, The suffering of the world uh, or suffering to cool is the um, starting point, is the uh, challenge that uh, the Dharma is concerned with facing and then responding to. And that can mean many different things for many different people, but it's to keep one's practice at that edge that matters. If we think of the Eightfold Path in this uh, rather more encompassing way, um, we could perhaps think of it as the practice of becoming wholly human or fully human. I personally think this is implied in the word Sama, usually translated as right. Right view, right thought, right speech, right action and so on. Um, now that's not entirely incorrect, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reasonable translation. But to me it has a rather uncomfortable moralistic tone. Right as opposed to wrong getting it right, getting it wrong. The word sama means something like complete. We talk of sama sambuddha. We don't talk of a rightly awakened one, as opposed to a wrongly awakened one. But it means a completely awakened one. There's a sense of completeness, of wholeness, And another way we could describe that is uh, integrated. Integration comes from the Latin integer, which means a whole number. So sama uh, suggests a way of life that has become integrated. And I feel that the... the, um, The Eightfold Path as a totality um, is about learning how to integrate how we see the world, how we make choices, intentions, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we work, the way we focus our energies, the way we pay attention, the way we concentrate. These are part of one integrated whole. Our life is no longer... Are uh, fragmented into different uh, departments. In other words, when 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 we go to work, we're one kind of person. When we go home to our families, we're another. When we come on retreat, then we do a whole bunch of other things. And although we these things can quite you know adequately coexist in some senses, we feel sometimes that our life is is fractured. Uh, that the the, the worker the parent, the Dharma student, um, uh, you know, don't quite hang together in one coherent whole. And so to me, sama uh, has to do with cultivating a way of life and an ethic, an ethical way of life in which our, the different dimensions and, uh, of our existence are, are brought together in a whole. One of the metaphors the Buddha uses that I think suggests this quite strongly is that he says the wise person should train or tame uh, the the self or themselves in the same way that a fletcher, an arrowsmith, um, constructs an arrow. Now if you think about that metaphor, an arrow is put together from different parts you need uh, uh, the the point which is metal you need the shaft which is wood and you need the fletch in other words the, the feathers which are drawn from birds and the skill of the arrowsmith is learning to put these diverse elements together into a single whole so they can work together And the beauty of the metaphor of the arrow is that once it has been well crafted and made, it can then be directed unerringly onto a target. Now, that I feel is a metaphor for a life that has um, become integrated in order that we can focus the entirety of our Uh, of our body, mind, energy, thoughts onto a single goal in other words our life is coming together and focusing on what matters most to us whatever that might be our ultimate concern the primary focus of what animates us most deeply um, in our lives so, to me the Eightfold path is a way of of fleshing out that uh, vision of um, integrity the Greeks um, called this ascesis ascesis, however you pronounce it, uh, where we get the rather pejorative term ascetic, but actually ascesis in Greek means practice and very much like the Pali Sikha or Shiksha in, in Sanskrit, a uh, training. In other words, this um, process of the path entails becoming uh, a practicing human. We practice being human. And that practice is about um, striving for integration, for wholeness, and again the Greeks have another beautiful word for this, eudaimonia which means flourishing, human flourishing in other words how do we flourish um, as a person and what I think the Dharma is particularly good at uh, uh, describing is are those things that prevent us from flourishing greed hatred, delusion are the classical triad again traditional Buddhism sees that the problem with greed, hatred and delusion is that they, they are the causes of suffering and that is probably true but I think it somehow misses the point I would argue that the problem with greed, hatred and delusion is that they prevent us from flourishing And the Buddha actually used uh, the word Kila to describe greed, hatred, delusion. Kila means aridity or barrenness, a place where nothing grows. And this is far more suggestive of how greed, hatred and delusion or, or craving or the Klesas or whatever we call them, or the asavas—they're all different ways of talking about the same thing, really. That these are basically what inhibit a person from becoming wholly human. We're locked; we get locked into the imperatives and the impulses and the habits and the fears that actually close us down. That uh, keep us going round and round in circles. Sangsara is what that literally means or what the Buddha calls Bhava, usually translated as rebirth but what it literally means is again becoming again becoming in other words repetition he says in the definition of the uh, of, of, of craving craving he says is repetitive a repetitive life is not a flourishing life It's uh, expending a lot of energy, but not getting anywhere. You just go round and round and round and round and round. And our meditation can become like that too. If we get too routinized, it becomes repetitive. Just keep doing the same thing again and again. It's as though the cogs become detached from the wheel. And it goes... But it's like the transmission breaking down in the car. It's not, it's not, there's no purchase anymore on life. So, um, human flourishing is freeing ourselves from the obstructive, uh, negative, destructive forces of this arid, barren um, uh, strategies and um, allowing ourselves to gain purchase on our existence in such a way that we actually move along a path. The Eightfold Path is a path. It's worth reflecting, I think, also on what that means. We use this word path uh, so um, easily that we forget its metaphorical potency. A path is the opposite of a circle, of a repetitive uh, cycle of habit. A path leads us into an unknown. A path allows us to get into our stride. A path is heading somewhere. We may not know where, but it becomes a constant engagement with what is unknown that is yet to come. It's not a cleaving to what is already familiar and known, which is maybe superficially more comfortable, but it doesn't really allow us to flourish. So this process, uh, the entering into the Eightfold Path, the Engaging with the practice of becoming fully human uh, begins with a conscious decision not to lead one's life any longer according to the unthinking impulses of our biology the dictates of society that we've internalized through our childhood through our education the habits of our psychology, the neurotic habits of our psychology, or the precepts of our religion, all of which get internalized as habit patterns. But we need somehow to secede from their norms and learn and have the courage to think, speak and act otherwise. And this, of course, requires that we consciously posit a vision, a new vision of what our life is for. And this, again, is another way of talking about a conscious vision of what constitutes the good to embark, therefore, on an ethical life. So how does Buddhism talk about that? This secession. Secession means breaking away from a a previous mode of existence and embarking on a new course of life. Traditionally, this is called renunciation. And renunciation in the classical formula is called uh, leaving, going forth from home to homelessness. Uh, which is a beautiful metaphor. It's almost synonymous, uh, in fact, in many Buddhist traditions, it is synonymous with becoming a monk or a nun. And, of course, uh, that is, uh, in our tradition, uh, the way in which going forth from home to homelessness is not only understood, but practiced. And uh, those who become monks and nuns Um, are, as it were, uh, making a conscious and also public statement that they have decided uh, to no longer live the life of habit but to embark on um, a new way of life. But the danger here is that we um, privilege an outward form of uh, social behavior with an inner uh, change of mind. What really matters, whether you're a monk or not, or a nun or not, is do you secede from the uh, habits of biology, psychology, society, religion, and take the risk of stepping into an unknown. Homelessness, it's not just about uh, you know, going up the mountain and settling in a monastery, although that might be the way you would choose to do it, but you can quite easily imagine a person joining a monastery for all manner of reasons. Um, in Asia, the monastery functions not just as a place for uh, you know, the spiritually committed, but often a place for people who can't cope with the world. Um In Korea, where I lived in a monastery for a number of years, the monastery was like a kind of a, a refuge for those who basically couldn't hack the kind of uh, social, economic and other pressures that were normative in Korea at that time. and we know from both Christianity and from Buddhism that this is you know nunneries are places where unmarried women usually ended up. Uh, And that need have nothing at all to do with um, this kind of deep existential commitment to let go of a repetitive and meaningless uh, existence and embark on one that is engaged with the risk of pursuing a path. So I feel today... um, Uh, we need to think more deeply about what renunciation means and although the monastic going forth is a very good symbol for that the actual act of renunciation cannot be equated simply with a change in lifestyle in fact paradoxically um, to leave home for homelessness um, as a monk today often means finding yourself in a very comfortable home. Uh, The Buddha's vision was not of a cenobitic monasticism. Cenobitic means residential. Uh, His vision was of wandering um, forth into the world uh, with nothing, going from from village to village, um, taking whatever shelter was offered, uh, taking whatever food was given to you, and not staying still, not staying in one place at all. A bit like the Franciscans in uh, these these wandering orders. And only during the monsoon, when that wandering life was literally not feasible, um, would you gather together in parks and groves, and meditate together, discuss, and then off you'd go again. And the Buddha saw this also as a as a very um, individual approach. There's a famous uh, pericope. You know what a pericope is? A pericope? Pericope means a stock passage that's repeated through the canon that says, uh, go forth into the world... Right? Not go forth into the monastery. Go forth into the world uh, for the welfare of the many, for the benefit of the many, and let no two of you follow the same path. Uh, That to me is a very powerful statement. And it doesn't really fit the kind of cenobitic monasticism that we find today. Um... In fact, uh, a peripatetic uh, lay, so-called lay uh, teacher, actually lives a more wandering and insecure life than many uh, monks and nuns who are uh, lavishly supported by generous uh, uh, donors in rather comfortable um, monastic situations. I don't want to make that into some sort of... In a, uh, comparison but I do think we need to think about that um, I think uh, I, I have many of my colleagues and friends who are uh, doing this kind of work leave very, leave, have very insecure lives we don't have the security of a, a monastery we don't know what, how we're going to be taken care of in our old age we don't have an insurance plan we don't have a pension scheme So I think we really do have to reflect deeply on what it means to renounce, what it means to let go of the conventional provisions and comforts and securities uh, that uh, it's so easy to become attached to. There's a lovely phrase, also another pericope, uh, that say uh, where the Buddha says, "A life at home is full of dust, a life gone forth is open wide. Now you get this metaphor of dust and lot of it 's a very it's it 's a common Indian idea uh, again, I think it 's very potent a, li- a life at home is full of dust now anyone who 's lived in a house knows what dust does. It, to start with, you don't notice it. Dust is invisible almost, and yet after a few days it's everywhere. And it, it kind of covers things up insidiously. It obscures them, it dulls them. And this, I think, is more a metaphor not of literally being in a domestic household, but in terms of what happens when we, our life becomes repetitive and complacent. It becomes sort of dull lackluster um, less sharp and clear and vivid whereas a life gone forth in other words a life of um, on the road uh, going from new situation to new situation a sort of peripatetic life um, is a metaphor for uh, again uh, a mind a frame of mind an inner life uh, that is Uh, willing to take risks. I think it's also tied very much to the idea of uh, a creative life in which we're constantly rethinking what we're doing. We're constantly exploring new possibilities. Uh, We're constantly letting go of familiar habits. And that's constantly opening up the world as an arena, uh, as a space uh, where new possibilities can begin to come forth. But the problem, as I've already alluded to, and as we, I'm sure, are, uh, are, are aware, is when you try to practice and live in this way, you, it seems almost sometimes to provoke a deep-seated resistance Uh, Again, a good example of this is that you may have a commitment to practicing meditation, mindfulness, whatever. Uh, And once the novelty wears off, um, you often find that as soon as you sit down, the, the mind goes berserk. It wants to do anything but watch the breath or be settled in the body. It's as though you trigger almost an avalanche of uh, thoughts, of emotions, of memories, of fantasies, of projections. This is the Mara Sutta, the flood of Mara, the stream of Mara, against which the Buddha's practice goes, the Dharma practice goes. Uh, The body-mind rebels against this practice. in Christian tradition, I think they sometimes call this the dark night of the soul. Um, with the very best of intentions, you find yourself doing the very opposite of what you choose, that you set out to do. Uh, in Greek, they call this akrasia. <clears throat> Akrasia is a term Aristotle uses, you find it elsewhere. Akrasia means, it's usually translated as incontinence, mental incontinence, (laughs) which is quite similar actually to the word uh, asapha, which means leakage. Um, Mental incontinence is the idea that you're constantly subverting yourself. One of the best examples of this is in the letters of St. Paul uh, I don't. It's in my book. I don't have the quote here, but it's basically or Shantideva Deva, uh, Shanti Deva, eighth century Mahayana Indian Buddhist monk, uh, one of my heroes, and he says, although I wish to be, although I wish to be free of suffering, I run into the arms of suffering itself. Although I wish to be happy, I kill my happiness like as though it were my my, my, my bitterest enemy and this is the acratic condition uh, the idea of mara likewise is very much about this uh, how we constantly seem to do the opposite of what we most deeply aspire to do and, and I, this is I think where the dharma is particularly valuable because it gives us uh, strategies and methodologies to actually work with this uh, and uh, much of what we call practice is basically our uh, engagement with our, uh, this counter tendency um, that we seek to renounce but keeps reasserting itself. It's very easy to have a moment of, of <clears throat> spiritual renunciation, deep commitment, maybe a great sense of liberation and joy, But then when we actually set out on the practice itself, um, we find that um, what we had renounced is still very much part of us, is still very much alive. And in fact, it seems to resent what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) So it's it's here, I think, that we need... um, or we, we, we realize that it's not just to make a, a one-off, renunciant act, but we somehow need to constantly reassert and renew our motivation. Uh, motivation is very important, not just once, but to set a motivation. Often it's good, I think, at the beginning of a sitting, to set a motivation a good motivation is to recite the metta phrases. May I be happy, may I be uh, at peace, may I be free of suffering, may you be happy, may you be at peace, may you be free of suffering, may all beings be happy. And and to recite that is, again, just a reminder that we're doing this for a purpose. Um, that we take very seriously there are many little phrases and verses in the different traditions, the one you mentioned the five yeah, the five daily reflections that's another example Um, and it's useful to keep coming back to them, not to repeat them mechanically but to take them to heart one of the expressions that I find um, very uh, that appeals very much to me, um, is the Bodhisattva vow that we find in uh, Chinese uh, Mahayana Buddhism. Um, And this goes, sentient beings are boundless, I vow to free them all. Afflictions are inexhaustible, I vow to sever them all. Dharma gates are numberless. I vow to learn them all. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Uh, In Zen monasteries, um, this is often recited uh, two or three times a day. Um, What I like about it is that... um, it recognizes the impossibility of this task at one level. If sentient beings are boundless, I'm not going to be able to liberate them all within the next 20 years or however long I have left. And yet you vow to free them all. If afflictions are inexhaustible, in other words, if greed, hatred, delusion, etc., there is no end to them. And as long as we are embodied, as long as these tendencies are still operative within our limbic system we're not going to ever sever them all but we vow to do so our dharma gates in other words uh, situations in life that can lead us to the dharma are numberless so you can't possibly learn them all and the buddha way is unsurpassable uh, in other words it, it goes beyond what we can in a sense even conceive of and yet you vow to realize it and uh, that paradox to me is, is, uh, um, expresses a certain honesty and yet at the same time it expresses this sense that in spite of all of this I will still vow to do it you take on that task uh, in a heartfelt uh, total way even though logically you know that you're bound uh, to fail. I know that might sound a bit odd, but um, to me it captures the, uh, the very core uh, of the degree of, of commitment that one would make to this way of life. I also find that these four vows map rather well onto what um, I call the four tasks and the four tasks which we'll look at um, tomorrow um, are of course a reading of the four noble truths and I wonder whether the four tasks uh, the four vows actually uh, preserve a memory of the four tasks before they morphed into the four truths. Um, Now, this was an idea that I was first um, introduced to by uh, Gil Fronsdahl, who you probably know or have heard of. He's a Vipassana teacher in uh, California. He's also a scholar. And he also started uh, his training in uh, uh, Soto Zen, I think, at the San Francisco Zen Center. And uh, he suggested, well, maybe the four truths are actually the basis of the four vows. Uh, When I was in Minneapolis last weekend, was it last weekend or the weekend before? Recently, um, I I, uh, I, I mentioned the same thing. And someone then brought me a um, book by a Japanese Zen priest called uh, Okamura. Um, who has actually, who makes the same point but tracks it back to an early Mahayana Sutra where the four truths are presented as four vows. And he says that was probably the basis that then developed into the formal four vows. So that came as actually a very good confirmation um, that the truths started out as tasks or vows to do something rather than to believe something. So that rather supports my thesis. And of course, I'm very happy about that. (laughs) But if we were to... um, We're going to conclude now. Um, The simplest way to summarize these four tasks is um, as follows, I feel. Embrace suffering, let go of reactivity, see the stopping of reactivity, and actualize the path. Embrace suffering, let go of reactivity, see the stopping of reactivity, and actualize the path which boils down into embrace let go see and actualize or simply act again the the goal is to act the cultivation of the eightfold path in more traditional parlance and that boils down to the acronym E-L-S-A or ELSA. And we'll stop there today. So um, let's now have uh, a 30-minute period of walking meditation. Um, Again, we're blessed with beautiful weather. So please... um, Uh, Use this time to stretch your legs, of course, to get some fresh air, but to bring a contemplative attitude towards the walking. You can formally do slow walking, uh, or you may just simply wish to walk at a normal pace, but try to keep the continuity of reflection and awareness uh, going at the same time. Uh, We'll meet back here at 11 o'clock. Could there be a bell at 5-2? Yes, 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 yes. Yes. Thank you, Steve. And um, we'll come back then and have another sit, and we'll conclude the morning with a discussion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.